All right, all right, that's enough of that rubbish. Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen. Boys and girls, welcome to VUX World. I'm your host, Kane Sims, celebrating, as of two days ago, five years of doing the VUX World podcast. And there couldn't be a better way to celebrate that than with an old friend, Micah Coppins. Micah, welcome to VUX World for the third time. Oh my God, so we're both celebrating anniversaries. You're a slightly more significant than my third appearance on the on the podcast. But congratulations, Kane. Uh, and I know I said to you to this privately, but really congratulations on what you've built out for the community as a whole. Like you're my go-to thing when someone asks me, where can I learn about conversation layer? I was like, go and listen to VUX World. <laughs> well, thank you. That means that does mean a lot. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, it's um, it started as uh, and and it's the essence of it is still exactly the same, which is a, a kind of quest for learning, basically. And I think that's what kind of you know that's what people hopefully that's what people listen for, and uh, that's the reason why I do it because every time I have a conversation like this, it is absolutely amazing, and I learn something new every time. And uh, I must apologise first of all. I do have. A box here for you <laughs> with your name on it, with one of these caps, which is for your hat trick of doing the VUXO podcast three times. Uh, but unfortunately, I didn't quite make the postage um, cut off. You were you were supposed to have it on your head right now, but I was a bit sloppy this week, so I'm sorry about that. But it is on its way to you, a cap akin to this to say thank you for the hat trick on VUX World. Right, thank you so much, Kane. Um, but um, I dressed in yellow just to be a court for you. So there you <laughs> perfect. go. <laughs> perfect, perfect. No that reason out the cap, but really appreciate it. Um, being on the podcast again, uh, really appreciate being here and sharing with you. And uh, you and I have these conversations each time we kind of come together, and it's great to share it with the wider audience as well. We, as you said uh, earlier, we could talk for hours. I know, but let's not, let's not take hours of people's <laughs> Indeed, indeed. Let's uh, let's get on with it. Uh, cool. So, so thank you for joining me. Uh, before we do get into the conversation, I want to just give a very quick shout out uh, and let people know about the uh, Edinburgh Chatbot Summit that is coming up in March. It's on March the fifteenth and sixteenth. We're going to be doing a track on the sixteenth uh, on Wednesday, March the sixteenth, and it is going to be all about enterprise automation with conversational AI. We've got uh, Vodafone, uh, Love Holidays. Uh, Total Jobs Group, Decathlon, LNER, a whole bunch of uh, brands who are going to be uh, sharing the tricks of the trade and lessons learned from implementing this stuff in production. What does it take to implement conversational AI successfully? Told from the brands that are implementing it pretty well. So I hope to see you there. You can go to theeuropeanchatbot.com and you can use the promo code VUXEU23 to save 30% on your tickets. All the links will be in the show notes and I look forward to to seeing you there uh cool so back to you micah uh that sounds very exciting i must say <laughs> it is going to be good are you going to be in edinburgh i'm not i'm still on the fence but now i'm really keen to go <laughs> <laughs> exactly it's going to be very good and there's a lot of companies who are doing some very interesting stuff decathlon are doing some interesting stuff they've basically shut down their call center and all of their contact now goes through facebook messenger google my business and whatsapp 
and they're managing it really successfully. Uh, Love Holidays implemented Sandy and it's been so successful that essentially they are in the process of re-architecting all of their digital estate to put Sandy front and center. And I know we can probably talk about some companies that you've been working with at Open Dialogue uh, that have done something similar, companies that are pretty much conversation only, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Love Holidays is an example, though, of a company that's not starting from that point. They're, they're trying to get to that point mm-hmm. um and so it's a really interesting talk so yeah hopefully if you're there then uh it'll be good to see you yeah well i, I have some fond memories from last year Kane, uh, where there was some very insightful talks as well um and and lessons learned so um yeah nice one cool so so welcome back uh last time you joined me on this show i don't believe you were at open dialogue at that time I was not, yeah. So last time uh, we talked about the voice acts design sprint. Uh, so using the design sprint to uh, validate use cases for uh, voice applications. Um, and I wasn't at Open Dialogue quite yet. Um, so uh, for those who don't know, um, Open Dialogue is a conversational software company. Um, that uses artificial intelligence to create sophisticated human-like chatbot and virtual assistants, and that enable our customers, uh, just like the brands um, that you are going to put on on the spot uh, in in Edinburgh, to automate their complex business processes. And and we've had some some nice use cases as well, as you mentioned, where. Uh, using conversational AI has really made a difference, um, has really made a difference not only for our customers, uh, but also for their customers, which um, which in the long run is probably the most important thing. <laughs> that's what matters really, isn't it? That's what, that's what we're all, that's what we're all doing it for. Um, that's good. And, and so for those of the, for those of you listening who haven't um, come across Open Dialogue, I would definitely recommend you check out the conversation I had with Ronald Ashry, who's the CEO uh, of Open Dialogue, because Ron gets into the details of why Open Dialogue exists and also fundamentally how it's different in terms of its the way that Open Dialogue has you think about conversations is very different compared to how most people design conversations. So I would definitely encourage people to go back and, and listen to that episode. I'll put the link to that in the show notes. But for those that are not going to sit through the entire hour of that conversation, Micah, uh, t- tell us in a whistle-stop way some of the things that are kind of unique about open dialogue because it is a slightly different way of, of thinking about conversation design. It is a slightly different way uh, of thinking about conversation design. And it has been um, the the setting stone from the beginning and and it is uh sometimes a bit of a challenge to be the the different one but it's it's mostly rewarding when we actually see the results that we get for our customers and so what is so different about open dialogue is that we think about the user experience first and that a lot of it is embedded um and coming from the way you would think about putting together an application from a UX design perspective. Um, so Open Dialogue thinks about the context in which a conversation takes place first, um, set, helps you set out the information architecture of the conversations first, and then helps you leverage natural language understanding within those contexts. So 
it is the other way around approach uh, of some sorts. And I always compare it to a closet, whereas if you're focusing on natural language understanding, what you get is a pile of clothes, as in a pile of intents. And then when you have to get up in the morning and actually get the right clothes for that day, for that circumstance, you have to go and scurry around for it. Um, whereas open dialogue really makes you think about the closet first and hanging your clothes together so that you can go in the morning and say, okay, I need to go to work and have a fancy conversation with my boss about my promotion. I get this hanger with this costume on it. Here I go and I'm ready to go. Um, mm. So so that that's kind of what's fundamentally different is really taking the approach on what is the customer journey? What are the conversations that need to be had um, with this customer for them to accomplish the goal they're here to accomplish. Mm, yeah, that's a good that's a good analogy. That um, it's uh, you can always tell. In fact, this was part of a talk that I gave at the Edinburgh Chatbot Summit last year, I believe. Which is that I think you can always tell when something has been built from an NLU first perspective, which I think was like the first generation of chatbots, and maybe it's a few generations after. And I think it still happens today, which is that. Things get built from the point of view of, uh, and it's mostly this is no this is no detriment to developers and, and technical people because they are fundamental to making this stuff happen. But when the technical brain leads the conversation design, it can be often found that you begin with intents, you begin with training data, and then you try and cobble the conversational bits on top of it, and you can always tell when that happens because you can't move from one intent to an adjacent intent. You're very much stuck in this tree-based thing where the only path is forward and it's only going to be the three things that the person's decided are next. And so it's kind of like, yeah, for me, I don't know if this is, if you'd concur with this, but I can always tell when something's been developed first rather than designed first. So I, I think I, I can concur in that there are a few conversation applications out there where you can definitely feel that that is the case. I wouldn't, it down to whether it's engineering or, or design or design first etc I think I think over the years we've all kind of learned and, and moved on from uh, just being a very um, natural language processing focused um, well I'm hoping that we've moved on <laughs> although some of the recent um, evolutions might um prove me wrong. Uh, but I do think what I do think is important uh, and, and doesn't perhaps get enough attention is that the magic happens when engineering and data are invited together with the design from the start of a project. And I think when the two work together and collaborate, and, and this is actually part of the talk I gave with Ron last year at uh, Edinburgh European Chatbot Summit, when there's like conversational collaboration, you can almost call it, um, from the get-go, that is where you can see the magic happen. Uh, because there's definitely been instances where even from a design perspective, you, you can design everything under the sun, right? But if, if an engineer can't make it happen, well, too bad. Uh, mm. And then the other way around, engineers have insights, have really have profound insights to what is technologically possible now um, that from a conversation design perspective 
you you might not have the insight into quite yet because mm. it's a recent evolution because it's something that they just came up with um which at open dialogue i've had lots of these instances where like oh well they're not not going to do this because well perhaps that's not possible and then we'll sit on a call with, with our engineers and they said oh we found like this new idea and uh, what do you think and how could this work for a conversation design and that's why why you see the magic happen, right? Um, mm. Not so long ago, I was listening to a, um, a talk that Marty Kagan, um, famous product um, manager, was uh, was a product author, was giving, where, where he kind of made a similar point, saying um, building a successful product um, is all about um, building a great user experience with the capabilities that are technological available now. So what mm -hmm. is kind of usual, valuable, and feasible um, in, in, in that moment? Um, and I think that that kind of comes back to what we're doing with conversational applications as well. It's, it, it is, in essence, building an application for an organization so that we can provide as much value to their customers as possible. Mm. And, 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 and part of that is, you know, the tooling that you use, the old kind of adage of the tools, we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. And I think that the focus, as you mentioned, that the focus on natural language understanding and that being the core component initially has led a lot of tooling kind of providers, IBM Watson, I'll pick on the big guys, IBM, well, bad guys and girls, IBM Watson being one, is that when you log into Watson, same thing with Dialogflow ES, CX is a bit better, but you log into Watson, first thing you get is a big long list of places where you can input your intents. That's like the starting point. So it's like the tools encourage you to begin from the intent up anyway, you know? And so when it comes to creating good experiences, it's, it's often that the design side of things has to be done elsewhere because the tools don't necessarily lend themselves to the to the more kind of design thinking. And I suppose that's the the gap in the market where open dialogue sits. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're absolutely right, Kate. I couldn't have said it better. So um <laughs> well while open dialogue really aims to accompany uh their customers from from a to z and and a lot of people will always tell you oh our platform accompanies customers from a to z but most of the time it's probably from from c to z <laughs> where the design actually needs to uh, needs to be done elsewhere or the other way around um the other way around it's kind of from a but then to W and then the deployment is, is a bit trickier because other technical considerations come into play um, where you'd almost feel, oh, this needs an engineer and this needs um, kind of custom code, et cetera, et cetera. And, and our aim has um, always been to really do A to Z and having that approach of setting out the customer journey and setting out um, the conversations to be had first um, is, is a core part of that. Um, and as a conversation designer, obviously it's the, the, the part that I care most about. Um, but um, I, I found it interesting, uh, case studies in, in which we've kind of worked, um, where we have been able to make very little to no changes at all 
um, to to the actual NLU that was sitting with the the experience. And just changing around the order of, of certain conversations and certain messages and when they were surfaced to the customer and, and just changing their length slightly, changing the wording slightly. And then we saw the numbers go up that we saw the, the actually the number of interactions, uh, the number of people actually um fulfilling their need with the chatbot double in the first month triple in the next month and it was quite quite impressive like to be honest Kane when we, we started um when we started out with the, the this case study and and you can find it on our on our website um when we first started out I was like okay we're going to do some conversation design and we're going to like improve the the conversations on on this use case specifically a bit better and we're we're going to kind of make a few small adjustments and i thought you know what we'll probably kind of make a small difference uh, and then incrementally make more improvements and more improvements mm-hmm. and then we saw the numbers and it was like okay like to be quite frank with you, Kane, like the, the first month we were like, shall we check this? Are we, sh-? because at Open Dialogue, we, we kind of always mi- minimize the work that we do. <laughs> Ronald, our founder, like one of our co-founders constantly tells us like, we're, 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 we're doing a good job. We're doing the best that we can. Um, and, and we shouldn't minimize our wins. So the first month, what we naturally did was like, we, got, we went and checked if, there was no way that these numbers could be could like could be biased or or something went wrong with the analytics tool, um, but it didn't. So um, so so I think that this kind of just showcases um, how important um, customer uh, how important actually the user experience is. Um, so uh, this particular case study was uh, for customers that were um, declaring that they had been um, a victim of cyber attacks. So it's really, really important use case um, because a you have been a victim of or what you think is a cyber attack. You don't have any clue. You're in a very stressed out ch- situation, and then someone asks you to start using a chatbot, and you're like. For freak's sake, do I even trust this thing? Uh, I've just been cyber attacked. Um, so, so, and, and so, what is also important to say is this is an organisation that works with volunteers, lots of volunteers. So they are giving that time, and and kind of automation becomes important to them because they can only help so many people with the people that they are, right? With the volunteers that they are. Mm-hmm. So. Um, all of that to say is that in customer experience, there's one key word, and that word is experience. Uh, mm. And what? So you you named this um, this podcast. Why have we forgotten some of the basics? I think we're always inclined to run after the newest technology because it's exciting because new things are possible. And I think oftentimes it becomes a bit harder then to advocate for 
user research, it becomes a bit harder to advocate for, let's spend some time really thinking through the conversation design. And, and, in, and, in, late, and in, in the latest evolutions, the question is posed, do we still even need conversation design? I'm not asking the question. I'm, I'm perfectly <laughs> positive on the answer. But you can hear rumors <laughs> being mm. about, and do we, do we still need conversation design? Um, and, and I think lots of lessons have been learned throughout history on all components, right, of natural language understanding, of user experience, that we need to learn from and that we can't forget about. Um, and, and that was something that was actually quite clear also at the European Chatbot Summit last year, where we had a few professors pre present um, the, some, some case studies um, of things they have been working on and research that they are doing. Um, and it was really interesting because that's the things you don't really hear about those things mm. a lot. They're, they don't get talked about. But lots of academic research has gone on ar around the user experience. So not a, only when we think about research, we, ha we tend to think about, oh, this is technological research with loads of complicated words and schemas and diagrams. But there are actually also academic research studies um, based on linguistic patterns, for example, or um, customer behavior with virtual assistants. There's actually an interesting study around personality as well, where someone compares the personality or non-personality of Google Assistant versus the Poncho chatbot and what the customer preference there is. There's loads of interesting studies. And so sometimes in, in this industry, and I don't know how you feel about this, Kane, but you get the feeling that we have to reinvent the wheel somehow, but we don't. Like, there have been great studies and best practices in, in user experience design, in user research and techniques and methodologies that we can build upon. And I think you came, you, you use the design sprint, for example, quite a bit as well, which, mm -hmm. which originally was stemmed from product and not necessarily mm -hmm. from conversation design. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. I think that um, the the kind of the analogy that that I sort of use is: have you have you seen um, have you seen Graham Hancock's latest Netflix series? It's called Ancient Apocalypse. I have not. I'm putting that on my list for this evening. It is definitely <laughs> it is definitely worth it. So so what he does is he goes around a load a load of ancient sites across the world. There's one called Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. There's a bunch of sites in Mexico or ancient pyramids in Mexico and stuff like that. And all of these sites have been carbon dated to something like 11 and a half to 12,000 years ago. And according to history, according to archaeology, modern civilizations that are capable of building those kind of structures really didn't emerge until like 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, something like that. Or maybe it's even 4,000 years ago. I forget the exact dates. But basically, the evidence points to advanced civilizations that could build massive monolithic structures that existed well before we believed that humans could do that stuff. And so he calls it ancient apocalypse. And one of the phrases that he uses in there, which really got my kind of wheel spinning, especially after hearing your talk out of the open, uh, all about voice in last October or November, 
um, was that his question is, are we a species with amnesia? Now, that instance is amnesia based on a, 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 a um, apparently there was kind of like a, loads of comets that hit the earth and, and that, that could have caused massive floods, etc. But in this instance, what we're talking about is people who have experience in product design, service design, user research, design thinking, project management, technical development, software testing, coming into a, a new way, a new kind of technology type, new interface type, new design practice, and, and similar methodologies from a high-level framework perspective, but the details within are definitely different. And it seems as though you're exactly right. That It seems to me, at least, as though we are a species with amnesia because user research doesn't really exist it does exist but it doesn't happen very often i've worked with some some pretty big organizations in the last sort of like four years and user research was the was the main thing that i kind of brought to the table after knowing seeing that they just don't do any of it don't test anything before it goes out with customers to see whether the experience is actually any good project management i think is another area you know i think there's a lot of uh, agile fanatics that basically run waterfall projects, <laughs> which <laughs> which happens all the time, and and it's What's like uh, with, with this like little tad of agile. Yeah, it? it's 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 a waterfall project with agile terminology, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> I spoke to Jim Rowe about this, and he kind of concurred that that like you know because it's a a new technology type and all of a sudden we've got things happening, conversations happening in the wild, that are unpoliced kind of thing. It's like, we really don't want to go live with this until we're absolutely certain. Whereas the reality is the earlier you go live, really providing you've got a decent enough first pass, the better that you'll be by the time you get to the point where you would have gone live because you've got all of that optimization time. And so I feel as though you're right. There's a load of areas where, um, and this isn't necessarily that people are coming into this kind of space forgetting what they know. It may be actually that there's just people coming into this space that don't know this stuff. You know, if you, a lot of conversation designers are like copywriters and playwriters and really creative people that maybe have never worked in a, in a product environment or a service environment and, and worked with this kind of methodology. Perhaps there's... Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's a bit unfair to sort of make assumptions and, and stuff like that. But there's definitely some very fundamental things that, you know, in my experience from observing lots of different teams do this stuff, get missing for some strange reason. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so it's interesting, right, where you say we've got different people coming into this field, etc. And over the last few years, that's definitely been the case, right? People come from UX design, from copywriting, from project management, etc., etc., and I inherently think that the responsibility is not on 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 them because you don't know what you don't know, Kim. Okay? Now, like literally, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, um, definitely, you you are very focused on your specialization, what your specialization means for conversation design. You're learning this new skill, which is conversation design, which is kind of close to what you were doing before, but not quite. But it is up to leaders in the field to raise awareness around the fact that hey like there's not just this little area these these areas as well it's also up to um educational instances that bring courses to people to say listen these are the foundations these are the basics 
and 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 this then allows you to concentrate on the detail of what you were originally good in as well but oh broaden up the horizon and then finally something that i've learned um kind of going through loads of projects is you also need stakeholders to create the space for the people within their organization to actually do these things because i i i i sincerely think that there's a lot of UX designers and UX researchers that would very happily jump on the user research bandwagon for a conversational AI project, but that they're, they're not given the space and, and they advocate for it very heavily. Certain people very heavily, other people less heavily because it's, it's all to do with the UX maturity of the organization that you're in. And that's something that's really hard to move uh, as, as a solo pre- practitioner or as, uh, as part of a team, because there are, there are conflicting priorities there. The experience needs to go out to the world. It needs to be built. You need to do your best possible. You know that user research would be great, but it feels like this daunting thing because you need to sell it into your stakeholders. Whereas the other way around, when you're given the space, it's like, okay, we can do this. And if if, if platforms, um, when they go into organizations, rather than just selling the tool, they also, they also say, hey, listen, we have the tool, but it's really important that you know what you're doing with our tool. Mm-hmm. I, I think we all have to contribute as a community to the fact that these experiences become better and better. And I think over the years, they most definitely have become better and better. Um, mm-hmm. Looking at some conversational applications from a few years ago, I go, "Oh my god!" Like even, <laughs> even like, uh, like I'll admit it. Even, even things that I've designed, it's like, "Oh, did I do this?" <laughs> <laughs> because you learn, right? You learn with each new project, and, and you make mm. it a bit better each time. And as you so rightly say, you have to kind of start experimenting because otherwise, the train will be long gone before you actually take it. But you have to do so in a informed way. Because if you don't know who you're building something for, if you don't know what they want to accomplish, and if you don't know what kind of questions they'll be asking, well, then, then you're just doing what you were doing before. You're having a monologue. You're talking at your customers. You're not talking with your customers. The whole idea of conversational applications is to create a connection is to make sure that that connection between customers and organization happens. Um, and, and so it's not only about what they would ask, but why they're asking it. Uh, and, and there's loads of questions to be uncovered before you actually go into um, a, a conversational project. And it will set you up for success later. So yes, it takes some investment, some time, and some effort to do these things, but it will pay down the line because you won't be playing a guessing game. Because you'll you have a lot more insight into what types of questions your user might be asking, how they might be searching for a certain product. 
Um, there's an example that I give, and which I talk about in my book also, where um, I was working with um, this, um, I don't know how you call this in um, in the UK, uh, like uh, where you get tooling and things to do some decoration around the house. And- oh, yeah. Yeah, like a like a like a block like B and Q or something like that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and we were working with with this brand, and this brand said, "Oh, we'll do a chatbot based on our catalog. Um, we have a catalog data with uh, the tools, with things like paint, how much kilo the paint bucket actually is." Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and people can just ask for it in that way, the way they search on our website, right? Because that's the way it was done before. And I had I had the chance to actually um, go and be on the floor in the saw with a team for multiple days on end um, and to do a sh- some shadowing, shadowing, which is a technique that is used in... UX design um, mm-hmm. and, and research, which is a qualitative method. Uh, and um, and we actually learned that people don't ask about getting a pot of paint blue um, of three kilos. No, uh, they they come to the the person in in the in the store. And they're saying, "Listen, I need to repaint my bathroom. Um, what 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 would be a good paint so that um, that is waterproof?" Um, mm. So it's all about, it was all more about the project than the actual thing, um, mm. which had we not had the space to actually do that research, we would have just built a conversational equivalent of the search that they had on their website. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's very good. Um, we've got a very good question from Adam, Adam Wallacott. Shout out to Adam. Um how would you recommend advocating for the importance of UX research and testing in an organization if deadlines and budgets are tight? Let's take that example you've just got there. You've got some data, website search data, stuff like that, but you really want to go and spend some time with the boots on the ground. How do you go about kind of advocating or, or trying to sell that in when you know they've got a, a very specific project timeline and stuff like that? I, I think that's a very interesting question and I'll tell you why. Um, I've always, I've always found when I read articles about this very topic, they always recommend you, um, to, to kind of start small or, um, you, you can tell them that it will pay in the long run, et cetera, et cetera, which all of that is true. But in the reality of an organization, you can tell that to stakeholders until your face goes blue. The reality of it is that deadlines are what they are. They need to be met and budgets are what they are. And oftentimes user research has not been calculated within that budget. So making the case with previous case studies, um, be it yours or be it someone else's where it has made a significant difference uh, I find to be very, uh, I have found to be very successful. Uh, making user research less sound, less daunting, because a lot of the time 
user research feels like you have to use like 10,000 methodologies, you have to have quantitative information, qualitative information, you have to go out there, be in the store for a week, doing very intricate things. But actually, you can do it in as little as five days, Kane, you notice. Yeah, so so, and you can even do it in as little as one day uh, because the testing part of the design sprint is just the one day. Um, so um, the advocacy goes around the fact that you make it smaller, you make it sound less daunting, and then you showcase the value through case studies yours or other people's because obviously if you're in this organization and you've never been able to do user research case studies will be hard to come by for yourself um and then little by little it's doing a little experiment and, and finding a little time because it you you can start really really small you can build a quick prototype in no time and test it out with a few people uh, and yes, it will not be ideal. And yes, you will then get the feedback because it's interesting, right? When you don't do any user research, people will tell you, oh, well, there's no time or there's no budget. When you then do some on your own, they'll go, oh, well, five users certainly is not enough to make any conclusions. <laughs> so, so it's interesting, right? So it, it feels like it's an ongoing battle. But Proving the value through case studies, I have found to be very valuable. And then also making it sound like it's less daunting um, because it, it feels like, oh, my God. Because, you know, the core of, of the thing is what the fear really is that you need to um, kind of alleviate is it's not so much um, about the fact that money must be invested, it's also about the fact that what if the things that we find completely turn upside down what we had initially planned to do because stakeholder conversations have been had, this idea has been sold, and therefore it must now happen. Mm -hmm. And so it's about alleviating that fear and also not saying, oh, what I'm going to find, your idea, your hypothesis, I think it's absolutely not right. And I'm going to find out and I'm going to like do user research and they will tell you to flip it on its head. <laughs> it's about finding in the user research the smallest things that you can improve that can make the biggest difference within the remit of um, the project that you're doing. And obviously, if you find that it absolutely doesn't make any sense, by all means, say something. Uh, but 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 I think it's it's about making it less mysterious, making it less daunting, and also doing the smallest thing, uh, doing the smallest experiment with a few people that will already tell you quite a bit. Um, and you can. There's also always this question around recruiting, right? Because um, you could say, well, actually, you can take it away and show some family members and get some feedback. But then there's the question of bias, because really, they want to help you out. They want to be nice to you. And and you can, you can, you can tell them, oh, I don't really care. I'm happy to get your feedback. But they'll, like, there will always be bias there. 
But then there is the idea of using, like, of, of having users that are once, what I call once removed, which is not your, which is not like your aunt, but perhaps some friends of your aunt's, which is already a bit further removed from you, but still, if the if she's part of your audience, I think what makes what makes it easy to advocate for user research also is to have a solid plan. Because mm. uh, if you go to a stakeholder and say, oh, we should do user research, like, is that okay? Well, what does that really mean? <laughs> like, how many people should you interview? Um, who do you want to interview? Are these people going to have NDAs or not? Or is there regulation around um, how and where you're going to interview them? Um, you need a solid plan. You need to say, I have, you have, you need to be able to say, I have thought about this. I have thought about the customer journey. I have thought about what a good conversation AI application would look like. And, and we've worked around this with the team. And we have some serious question marks. And these serious question marks will help us make informed decisions around the experience and which will avoid us later on to actually um, having to rebuild something or having to um, rethink an entire experience. And I think that's where, that's where I nicely make the bridge to tooling as well, because there are things that once it's out there, user research is not just up front, right? It's just not just... A lot of people think, oh, it's before we actually do something. It is important before, it is important during a project, and it's also important after a project. And what's interesting is that um, A-B testing, for example, is a wonderful example how you can make small improvements incrementally to your experience that can make all the difference. I've seen use cases in which... Um, people would get called proactively um, by, by one of their finance companies. And uh, it was formulated in a certain way. So it was kind of to, to gather, to collect um, money from people that uh, owed money. And it was formulated in a certain way and they didn't have a lot of success. And then they did some A-B testing and changed a few words, just a few words. And they, they found that, oh, actually, if we just change two, three words in the sentence, we actually get more results. And, and so having a tool that has the flexibility for you to aim, easily change things, easily do A-B testing, easily kind of expose users to different versions of your application, that that is gold. And that is something that... Um, that is something that doesn't require a lot of effort or, or investment. It requires you to have a tool that allows you to do that. And then little by little, make small incremental improvements to your experience based on what you find. Mm, absolutely. And the, the question also is, is, what is the, what situation are you in? So for example, if you're working in, in a company and you're a designer in a company, then all of those things that you've said apply 
in terms of how to advocate for user research, how to do it. I mean, we didn't mention guerrilla user research, just getting out there and doing it, not asking for permission, just going and getting some data, getting on the shop floor if you work in like retail or whatever it might be and actually just getting out there, you know. Um, there's, you know, you can literally do, as you mentioned, you can do testing on, on applications in a day. Just call us some people from marketing, try and get hold of a couple of customers, get them on a Zoom call and put an application in front of them and just observe them testing it. There's lots of different things you can do, but from the from the other side, if you're kind of not within the company, but you're a, a kind of service provider, then you just you just build that into everything that you're proposing. You know, like this is the way that we operate. This is stage one. This is how we engage with users. Stage two. This is how we do the same thing here, and you kind of build it into the sort of framework. You know, like it's it's it, it, it's for some things, and also build, building it around that concept you mentioned. Here's some question marks, some assumptions, like what is it that we want to learn is the question, isn't it? Like, what do we yeah. not know and what do we want to learn? And, and <laughs> the project can't really move forward unless we learn these things. Otherwise, we're just taking a massive stab in the dark. And it's not even that it's going to cause more work later on. It might actually be that some of the assumptions we make are, are really fundamental, like your kind of assumption of this this chat assistant needs to be about choosing paint colours. That's so fundamental that you could have gone live with that and the whole thing could have been completely canned later on because it just doesn't yeah. work. So, so it's, yeah. it's interesting, right? It's uh, one. Uh, it was part of the talk I did uh, at Voice Summit. It's it's part of not doing the cost of not doing it, right? It's it's thinking about that as well. Like, what is the cost of not doing user research? Well, the cost of not doing user research is that you end up building the wrong thing, and the cost of not doing user research while you're doing the product, while you're actually building the application. So, not just from a strategy perspective. Not just from, is this the right use case perspective, but from the conversation design perspective, is this the right way to word things? Is this is this the right structure? Is this what is the most important thing for users first time they get in onto the, the conversation experience? Um, that that then is the, the, the cost of not doing user research as well. You're actually building it in a wrong way. And it's what, what I call the infernal cycle of innovation. It's where oh, we want to do this thing because there's a new technology. Let's not invest a lot of money and do an experiment. Let's not do user research because really it's just an experiment. Let's also not market it too heavily and not talk about it because really it's an experiment. <laughs> and then in the end, we go, okay, let's let's review what we've just done. Um, oh, nobody used it. <laughs> oh, so this technology really doesn't work. <laughs> and it's like, yes, because all of these decisions that have been made. And so it's it's about the cost of not doing it. And I, I think you're very right in that um, service providers or platforms need to also advocate for user research and need to also make it part of the services and the tooling that they provide and make it easier um, to, to do things like A-B testing, for example, um, need, to, need to also accompany their clients when they say, oh, we want, to, we want to do this thing with your tool. Okay, great. Have you thought about all of these things? Can we validate this use case together, for example? Really important because it's mm. important for everyone that is concerned, right? Because if you go in and say, okay, great, we have this tool, you're going to do this use case, go at it, 
and we haven't validated together that that use case is actually valuable, well, in the end, that relationship won't last very long. So it is fundamental and it is important and it is all part of growing together as an industry to say, let's not forget that a conversation is about building a connection. Yes, it's about automation. Yes, it is about making processor quicker, more efficient, uh, helping with uh, kind of more tedious tasks, etc. But it's for first and foremost a conversation between a customer and the organization. And if if no one invests in finding out what that conversation is going to be about. It's just people talking next to each other rather than with each other. Um, and I think that that's kind of, that's a key point, right? That, that connection between technology use cases and, and the customer and making mm. sure that everyone is set up for success. Mm. I'm, I'm a big believer in, in, defaults like i'm sure you've come across like the the whole sort of nudge theory and stuff like that like whatever the default is is the thing that gets adopted and so if a default behavior is these are the activities that we do in a project regardless of whether you're on the outside as a service provider or technology provider or the inside as a as part of a design team this is how we do things around here is a very kind of important sort of message it can be to your detriment if it doesn't change over time you can get stuck in a rut and things become stagnant but making it a default behavior <clears throat> i think is really important um but what do you think about this isn't necessarily a devil's advocate question i suppose it's just a different way of doing user research is a different type of user research it's probably more it is it is quantitative but it's also a mixture of quantitative and qualitative because you can go out there and you can do interviews you can do shadowing you can get a real deep understanding of customer needs employee needs things like that what would you learn from that that you couldn't learn from things like uh, analyzing transcripts, for example? Or is is there in your mind a specific reason to do one of each activities, kind of more kind of in-person, really high qualitative sort of uh, interviews and shadowing versus the more kind of volume-based uh, transcript analysis? I think you're trying to answer different questions, right? With uh, and this is this is the eternal question: Should I do quant or qual? Um, which which again is an age old question from from user experience. So uh, ni- nice that we kind of track backtrack to the <laughs> fact that are we having amnesia? <laughs> I think you're using like you're answering different questions, right? Listening to transcripts will tell you what kind of questions people are asking, what kind of questions, what kind of answers they're getting will give you some insight into perhaps the tone of voice that's being used. Um, what it will not do is well t- it will not tell you why people are asking those questions. It will not tell you what they're trying to accomplish. Um, it will tell you, oh, a user asked 10,000 times, what is this organization about? oh, this is a very important weighted question, we should answer it. But it doesn't tell you what's the sentiment that sits behind it. Is it because the experience seems a bit clunky and therefore the trust is low? Is it because um, 
actually they want to verify the the privacy and conditions etc etc et you don't know you just know that people are asking that question and i think the combination of both is really important it also depends where you are in your project and so for people that really want to look into what type of methodology should i use when um I invite you to, um, and I'll, I'll share this link with you, Kane, so that you can uh, kind of share it in, in the in the side notes as well. Um, Southern Compass, um, I don't know if you've ever heard about them, um, has a framework for for uh, actually thinking about um, quantitative versus qualitative data and when you need what, and they have a grid that you can actually um, put that on. Is that what do I want to find out? How early am I in the project? Do I have data available? Don't I have data available? Um, have I got more assumptions than certainties? Um, and there, there's actually a, a whole framework there um, that um, that they they've put together, and it's 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 quite interesting. It tells you a lot about what types of research you should be doing at one point. Very nice. I put myself on mute there because Winston's gone mental downstairs for some strange reason. Yeah, uh, he's, 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 he's going, yes, you should definitely do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's dog food. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, that's cool. I'll put that link. I'll put that link in the um, in the show notes. Definitely, if we can send, if we can send it across. Um, that's cool. So, so what we've we've spoke about some areas that we might have amnesia on. We've got really depth in depth into user research. Uh, the reasons why, how to how to go about it, how to sell it in, when to do what. Um, obviously, there's probably a lot of other areas we can get into in terms of areas where we've got amnesia. But I'm keen just to get your thoughts on. You alluded earlier on to, you know, do we get drawn towards the new shiny thing all the time? Does that potentially distract us away from doing things the properly that we should be doing based on what's feasible and achievable today? Um, and does does that how does it how do things change conversation design was another thing a conversation design going to be made redundant and all this kind of stuff and uh, I remember giving a talk in 2021 to one of the voice talks events and uh, I'd just come out of doing a series of podcasts all around transformer models and all that kind of stuff and so I was really enthused by the whole kind of transformer based approach to large language models and stuff like that and I kind of came out of that flurry of conversations with this kind of concept of conversation design will change but it won't go away and it will become important because part of that is going to be policing what these transformers actually do and trying to control them and harness them and things like that. Uh, I, I still probably stand by a lot of what I kind of was saying then. And I think actually I give open dialogue a shout out in that conversation because I was looking at other ways of, of doing it. Um, and I think I still stand by a lot of that stuff, but as we've seen chat GPT, we've seen, people get very enthused about chat GPT in particular. That's then led people probably for the first time in many instances, instances to look at transformer based NLP systems. And then it's encouraged a lot of platforms to then go ahead and implement integrations into open dialogues, GPT three APIs to try and bring about use cases. Now use cases have existed in conversational AI platforms prior to this, of course, but I'm talking now about like the recent hype, which has encouraged lots of people to go and implement these integrations to start to come up with use cases. The one side of the camp is that um, large language models 
and and emerging technologies really won't fundamentally change conversation design. What they'll do is they'll just sit underneath as a bedrock to catch things that that we just miss. You know, those wildcard conversations, it'll just catch them and pick pick them up and put them back on track. Another school of thought, um, and this is coming from a conversation I had with uh, Nick Frost, who's the CTO of Cohere. The other perspective is that actually large language models will begin to completely control and drive the conversations over time. So that it's the large language model in the driving seat and other technologies like dialogue management, like context management, like traditional intent-based NLU systems would kind of sit in the passenger seat or in the back seat and just kind of help it along its way. Whereas the other model is that those traditional, if you like, technologies in the the driving seat and the LLMs are kind of just like, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Tracking, you know, like anti-slip tracking or whatever it might be, just keeping the car going on the straight and narrow. What's your perspectives on this? Like, do you think that it's going to be under the hood and it's going to just kind of contribute where where it needs to? Or do you think that really there's a, the it, it might kind of reestablish how conversations are created and managed? So it's a, it's a very interesting question, right? And um and I think there's 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 a few things there. Um, I think uh, first of all, I wanted to thank you, Kane, for your very good article on Chat GPT and large language models, and that they are not the same thing. <laughs> um, because I, I, I see a lot of lots of articles out there that kind of um, convolute both of them and then make some assumptions. Mm. Um, I think there's three elements to a good experience. Uh, well, probably more than three, but in, in the context of of the large language model conversation, right? I think yes, there are the large language models that inc- are increasingly efficient, are increasingly impressive, and increasingly accelerate the conversational AI journey. Then you have, but they are what they are. They mod their models of language. As in, they are the answer to the question, how, like of talking and knowing words and knowing sequences of words and phrases, right? And 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 the most probable next thing that would come after a certain question or phrase. Then the second part is obviously the experience, which is, as I said, you can have a pile of clothes. And you have you can have that pile of clothes in a certain sequence, but it just still doesn't tell you exactly what clothes are most appropriate for a given circumstance. And for to for that you need the experience, right? And you need something like open dialogue um, to manage the dialogue, but not only the dialogue, also the overall experience because it's not because you can talk about anything that your customer wants to talk about anything they want to talk about a precise thing and and from the from the organization side point of view uh there's also the organization wants to accomplish something like e-commerce for example or marketing funnels there's there's a certain sequence there where you talked about the nudge, right? Um, that there's there's nudging and and kind of overall experience design that needs to happen 
for that conversation to take place successfully for people to accomplish their goals. And then there's all the knowledge. There's kind of the knowledge that sits within the organization uh, and uh, there's that data. And these three things working together is where it really becomes powerful. And, and you need an orchestrator, as you say, uh, to make that happen. And obviously, because I'm, I'm very embedded in, in experience, I would say that the experience is the orchestrator and, and the, the management of the dialogue is probably what harnesses, as you say so well, um, the large language models and, and, and the NLU-based models and the kind of more traditional experiences of this is the route that we want you to go through as a user. And I think it's, it's an orchestrator that, that sits on top of it and kind of knows which to alleviate at what moment and what makes sense in the overall experience of for the user. Um, so, so I think I'm probably more school harnessing of the model than I am school, the model takes it all. Um, but I mean, things will improve and evolve and, and constantly keep improving, right? Um, but I think it's important that we keep in mind that these large long language models come like with, as we say, great power, come great responsibility. Um, and I, I, I think that uh, they're, they're very impressive. Um, and I think it's important to make the difference between ChatGPT, which is really just an application of large language models and what large language models by themselves can do. Um, it's not not quite this, the same thing. Um, and I, I, yeah, so in a conclusion, I think the combination of large language models with knowledge bases and with a great experience and dialogue management can make for a very successful uh, conversational application. And that's what we're yeah. aiming to do at Open Dialogue, really, by harnessing yeah. um, integrations with OpenAI. And then in addition to that, for conversation design as a practice, which is another conversation still, I think it's a great enabler. I think it helps. It's an assistant. And that's also kind of the way we, uh, I'm thinking about it for, from, from an open dialogue product perspective. It's really, it is an enabler to open up the realm of possibilities to open up the, your realm of thinking, because as we er, said earlier on this call in a different context, you don't know what you don't know. So mm -hmm. as a conversation designer, you base yourself on data and hopefully user research that you were able to do. And, and you construct the experience around that, around best practices, around patterns that have been researched in the past. But, but then in the end, you're still there with your bias and your team's bias. And, and the fact of having a, an, an AI assistant to help you open up that realm, to generate new ways of, 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 of having other synonyms, training phrases, other possible questions. I, I think that's where, where the power for now lies for conversation designers. So I, I, I think we shouldn't, as as a as a as a profession, say, "Oh my God, we're going to lose our jobs." No, I think there is room, and there will always be room for helping organizations to make the right decisions and how to harness 
um, large language models or new technology or new things that we're not even aware of will exist, who knows, in a year or two or three. Um, where, and I think it's an opportunity actually for conversation designers to take up that space of having a more strategic role of advocating more for making the right decisions and making informed decisions. Um, and that, that kind of has been my thought from, from the very beginning. Um, even, even when kind of chat GPT in November came out and suddenly created all this buzz and fury, it's like, okay, great. What does this mean for us conversation designers? if everything is now generated. And then I, I said, okay, well, what is being generated is not necessarily always true. Uh, <laughs> but in, in, in addition to that, it's also not very context rich in, in that, yes, it can remember that you just about talked about this other thing. And when you refer to it, uh, it knows that the it was the thing from before, but it doesn't know your context as in you are this person sitting in this room doing these things within mm. this ge geographical location uh, and you have had these kind of uh, interactions on other channels with this um, company before. So mm. I, I, from the get-go, I thought this is a great opportunity to move conversation design from the preconception of your writers of prompts to you are designers of an experience. Mm. Yeah, perfect. That's very well put. Very well put. Uh, Jeffrey Carr Harris says, on a more abstract plane, I'd like to give three cheers and a shout out to Micah and her colleagues for the work they've done with building their pattern library and bringing the ideas of Christopher Alexandra to conversation design. So shout well, out. So thank you very, very much for that shout out. And, and I'll, I'll share that shout out with all the colleagues at Open Dialogue. Uh, and moreover, also with Joseph Tyler, who has um, helped us uh, with the pattern library and has contributed to that work as well. Brilliant. Uh, and another shout out to Micah for all of the work that you've done to further the field of conversation design in general. I think, you know, you've got your book, which is out uh, still in in French as it currently stands, conversation, uh, design conversationnel, that was pronounced? Exactly. So um, design conversationnel is the first French book on the topic. It's published by an editor called Erol, who is uh, the editor of most technology and web technology books, has a whole series in France. Um, and uh, it's, it's a funny thing because my editor actually had to stop me at some point because my user research chapter was longer than the other <laughs> chapters. It's like, you're writing a book about conversational AI, not about user research. So that just shows you how passionate about I am about that. The book is still available, of course. Um, it was published in October of last year. Uh, and I think a lot of methodologies in there most definitely still apply. Uh, and um, I had a little blink for large language models in there as well, um, just kind of on the forefront of it coming up. So, um, so yeah, um, I try to contribute my uh, 
a little to the to the realm of conversation design. And hopefully us advocating came for uh, putting the user front and center will also create more space for all the conversation designers out there. Definitely, definitely. And it's not just the book and it's not just the design patterns. You've always been contributing. I know you did some work with Heidi Culbertson in the past around workshop and templates and playbooks and all this kind of stuff. And you've shared so much kind of knowledge with, with VUX World over the years, you know, from how to take one uh, conversational assistant in one language, translate it into another language. Trans creation, I think we, yes, we were talking trans about. Creation. Trans creation. Another topic I could still care yeah. greatly about multilingual conversational applications. Really, really interesting field as well, uh, where we again can learn a lot from, from how the translation industry uh, works. And, and we should definitely kind of build upon that. Um, and not just say, okay, let's do multilingual intents and put some integration uh, on there, but really um, kind of bring it home by using translation best practices because that that's how organizations work with translators, right? So, um, so it's important that we don't get amnesia, but also that we don't stay in our bubble and that we learn from the industries we're working with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wicked. That is that is so good. I'll put the links to the book and also to open dialogue in the uh, show notes. If you're tuning in right now, you can see the link coming up here. Where has it gone? It doesn't seem to want to show for some reason. Why is that? Oh, there it is. Cool. That was a bit of delayed. OpenDialogue.ai. O-P-E-N-D-I-A-L-O-G. AI if you want to go and check out Open Dialogue, which I recommend you do. And I'll put the links to the uh, the book in the show notes as well, as well as some of the things that uh, we've been talking about, some of the some of the resources and stuff like that that you've uh, that you highlighted. Uh, Adam says, great conversation. Thank you both. Thank you for tuning in, Adam. It is absolutely a pleasure to be able to do this and a pleasure to have you along for the third time, Micah. Your cap will oh, be wow. in the post this week, I promise. <laughs> what do I would like? To be, what do I get when I come on a fir- fourth time, Kate? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't, I haven't got that far yet. No one's been on four times yet, I don't think. So I'm, I'm struggling. Oh, well. I thought the cap was a pretty nice uh, hat trick. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But, I know. Uh, yeah, I don't know what to do. What do you call four times if someone scores four goals? You don't call that. I have no idea anything? because I'll very much disappoint you. But uh, football is not one of my. <laughs> yeah. It very much was something that I have been very involved in all of my life until my son was born. Not necessarily putting all the blame on him, but like with VUX World and the son and family and stuff like that, it's like very little time for football. So I'm I'm miles behind. Um, Maybe... I was going to say that there's a golf analogy in there, but I haven't played golf for longer than I've played football, so probably not. <laughs> but any ideas on what to do for this, for somebody's fourth appearance, please do let me know. And if you've got any ideas, Michael, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. It, is, it will now become my ambition to find a fourth topic <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> you are always welcome. Always welcome. It is always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much, Kane. Thank you so much.